Yes, it's time once again for another episode of Wrestling with Theology. I am Pastor Doug Minton, here with episode number 65 of Wrestling with Theology. Digging deeper into Exodus, focusing today on the Ten Commandments. So as part of our digging, we will look through Luther's small catechism, as Luther helps us to explain each of the commandments. But before we get to the commandments... We need to check out what God says first as he starts giving us the commandments. So, verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. When we think about the Ten Commandments, we typically classify it as solely and only a proclamation of the law. We do this because we typically look only at the Ten Commandments. We don't always look at the entire context of Exodus 20. When we look at how God prefaces the Ten Commandments, we see that they are proclaimed with a gospel foundation. Man is naturally predisposed to see the Ten Commandments as a checklist to see how close they are to earning heaven. A list of things to do to become God's people. But how does God start the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord, your God. The Lord was already Israel's God. The Ten Commandments aren't a to-do list. God is explaining how his people will live. It's a high standard that we cannot attain, but we also look to the gospel for our comfort in these words. God has already put his name on the people. They don't need to do anything to earn his favor. It's theirs because of who he is. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God put his name on the people when the angel of death passed over their houses after seeing the Passover lamb's blood, Exodus 12. From there he led them through the Red Sea, leaving Pharaoh and his army buried under the waves, Exodus 14. He had delivered them from the slavery of Egypt. Now he gives the people his expectation of the way they will act. The Ten Commandments form the basis of the moral law. This section of God's law is what is written on the human heart and conscience. We see this all over the world, where there are laws about obeying the government, fourth commandment, murder, fifth commandment, marriage and divorce, sixth commandment, theft, seventh commandment, and on and on. No matter what society you consider, there is a general underlying idea against these things, that these things are wrong. So let's look at the first commandment, verses 3 and 4. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. The scriptures only have room for one God. If you've been following along the Mormon Mondays, you have seen the problems that arise when we try to work multiple gods into the scriptures. How is it that they can bypass this commandment? By bringing out that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are united in purpose, but not in person. But we believe, teach, and confess what Moses will later say to the Israelites. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. We heard it this morning from Mark chapter 12 in the Daily Dose. The entirety of Scripture, from the very first verse, speaks of God as multiple persons in one essence. 
The Trinity has always been the Scripture's faithful explanation of God. Moses' exhortation is to remember that God's essence is one, as the Nicene Creed reminds us. Jesus is begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Nothing in all creation can have the glory that God alone should have. God condemns anyone who will make a carved or graven image in order to worship it. Nothing in all creation made itself. Everything had its origin in God. He is the ultimate source of all goodness, mercy, and life. Therefore, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. At the end of the first commandment in Exodus 20, we have what Luther calls in his large catechism an appendix to the first commandment, but in the small catechism, the close of the commandments. While it is attached to the first commandment, it truly governs over all ten commandments. Finishing up verses 5 and 6. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What does this mean? God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Therefore we should fear his wrath and not do anything against them. But he promises grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments. Therefore we should also love and trust in him and gladly do what he commands. We don't often think of God and jealousy in the same vein. We think of jealousy as being sinful. God can't be sinful. So how can God be jealous? He explains himself in Isaiah 42.8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God is jealous for his creature's glory, praise, and adoration. He doesn't share these with anyone or anything. They are to be his and his alone. These verses show God seeming unfair in his punishments, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. That sounds very unfair. However, listen to the rest of the phrase, of those who hate me. God deals on a multi-generational level with those who hate and despise him. Case in point, the northern kingdom of Israel never had a family dynasty last past the fourth generation. In fact, the only one that did was begun by King Jehu, who was anointed to the throne by Elisha the prophet in 2 Kings 9. Why did these dynasties not last? Because all of them followed after their own heart. They didn't seek the Lord in his glory. Therefore, they were punished for their sins and the ones they imitated from their fathers. Although God seems unfair in his punishments, he is even more unfair in his blessing, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The older versions have to a thousand generations of those who love me. On occasion, God will even bless those who despise him because of the faithfulness of one of their ancestors. Case in point, the southern kingdom of Judah only had one dynasty. Every ruler was from the house and lineage of David. Even when the kings did not follow God, like Jehoram, God continued to bless Judah because of his covenant with David. 2 Samuel 7, 16, 2 Kings 8, 19, and 2 Chronicles 21, 7. God seeks to be merciful to all who have strayed from his word. Therefore we have in the prophet Joel, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He sent Jesus into human flesh so that he might take away the sin of the world. John 1, 29, Galatians 4, 4-7. 
This is grace and mercy in action. This is steadfast love manifested to all creation. With this understanding of God, we strive to keep all the commandments that he has given to us. So we move on to the second commandment. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic hearts, lie, or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. What does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? This is any usage of the Lord's name that makes it mean nothing. When Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all things are vanity, he was talking about the emptiness of life that has no meaning. If all things are vanity, what possible meaning can God's name have? God's name is full of meaning. We heard it very early on in our Digging Deeper episodes from Exodus 3, almost a year and a half ago, that the Lord's name, Yahweh, means I am who I am, Exodus 3.14. God's name at its core means existence. Nothing can exist without him because he is the very foundation of existence itself. If we make existence mean nothing, how can we possibly expect that God will take away that guilt? Through the Son who came in human flesh to bring redemption to all mankind. Therefore, we use God's name properly by calling upon it in every trouble through prayers of praise and thanksgiving. We pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, because we always need his help. We cannot help ourselves. We cannot take away our own guilt. We must throw ourselves upon his mercy. The place we do this best is in worship, which is the focus of the third commandment. Verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching in his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Here comes one of the great questions that has troubled some Christians throughout history. Are we supposed to worship God on Saturday or on Sunday? In the beginning, God rested on the seventh day from all his work of creation. There was nothing lacking from creation. Everything necessary for a life of peace, rest, and grateful worship was there. Nothing was lacking. That was on a Saturday. When God gave Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, he said the Sabbath day, but then he focused that in about the seventh day. Why do we worship on Sunday instead of Saturday? We are not under the old covenant of Sinai. God gave the Israelites the seventh day because he had rested on the seventh day. He blessed it and made it holy. He commanded them to set it apart so that no work be done on it to illustrate that their salvation did not come from their own works. Salvation comes from the rest that would be taken when the Son of God rested in the tomb on the Sabbath. Luke 23, 56. But that rest led to something greater. Something greater than God's rest after creation. Jesus' rest in the tomb led to his resurrection. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Matthew 28, 1-2 The Old Testament Sabbath remembered God completing creation. 
The New Testament Sabbath remembers Jesus completing the new creation through his death and resurrection. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 This creation has come through Jesus' redemption of the world. The church set aside Sunday, the first day of the week, the day of Jesus' resurrection, as the time for corporate worship in the days of the apostles. St. John received the glorious visions of Revelation while he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, Revelation 1.10. Even in his exile, John still worshipped as he had while he was with the congregations to whom he wrote Revelation. Part of the new creation is that we don't need a singular place or a singular time to be in worship. Although Sunday morning at 9 seems to be a universal time for worship, with good reason, it's not commanded anywhere in Scripture. Instead, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman at the well, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. John 4, 21-23 There is no commanded time or place for New Testament worship. We are simply called to worship. Luther encourages us to set aside time every day to worship God in devotions, prayers, and even full worship services. There is no one proper time for worship, just one proper way to worship, in spirit and in truth. So we move from here, the first table of the law, where Jesus has said, this is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to the second commandment, which is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And that is commandments 4 through 10. Fourth commandment, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities, but honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. Luther points out two different realms where we are to show love and honor. The home and in society. The home we understand because this is where the wording of the commandment comes from, father and mother. But the other authorities, this is the government, especially in this time of crisis where people are not necessarily in favor of who is in charge, but we still obey the recommendations and orders that they give because God has placed all authorities on the earth. Whether they are good authorities or bad authorities, that's not on God. That's on those who are in the office and doing it themselves. However, this is not blind following. This is not just lemmings mentality. We keep in mind Acts 5.29 where Peter says to the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than men. The Sanhedrin had just told him to never preach in the name of Jesus again. But God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, has said to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So, when the government or even our parents tell us to do something that is against God's word, we have the right to disobey them. But if there is no time of that tension, we should obey them.
As we move from the fourth to the fifth commandment, we move from the place where we learn all these things into how we interact with those around us. The fifth commandment, verse 13, you shall not murder. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and support him in every physical need. The greatest thing we have from God is our body. So we do not seek to hurt or harm anyone in his body, whether that is through murder, ourselves in suicide, or abortion, euthanasia, the use of drugs. All these things hurt and harm the body. But God tells us that we need to cherish the body of those around us. That we need to see them just like us. As the second great commandment says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This especially comes in the place of murder as we talk about not wanting to hurt others just like we do not want to be hurt. The sixth commandment. Moving out from our personal body, what's the next thing that is to us? Our closest neighbor, which for most of us is our spouse. Therefore, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. The sixth commandment is all about keeping the family unit together, especially the bond of marriage that begins it in the first place. So yes, this commandment involves sex. Sex outside of marriage, whether it's before marriage or during marriage with someone other than your spouse, all these are forbidden in this commandment. This is what adultery is. This is why God gives it to the Israelites in this way. Because the Israelites began their lives in the family bond of matrimony. The bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. I have a friend whose daughter's bat mitzvah has been postponed indefinitely until this uh, virus is taken, uh, taken care of. That was the point where Hebrew boys and Hebrew girls became adults and became able to be married. And yes, girls were married at age 12 or 13. Boys, about 17 after they had done an apprenticeship after their bar mitzvah. God gives this commandment as adultery because it was a culture where marriage happened young. And as I'm recording this and publishing this, it is the Feast of the Annunciation. It is the time where the Virgin Mary, 12 or 13 herself, was told that she was going to be the mother of God. The Seventh Commandment, another one of these that we see globally as something that is considered wrong in the world. Uh, verse 15, you shall not steal. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not take our neighbor's money or possessions or get them in any dishonest way, but help him to improve and protect his possessions and income. This is one of the things that we see rampant right now. And people don't even think of it as stealing. You know, all those who have gone out and bought 
five, six, seven, eight hundred rolls of toilet paper because they want to make sure they have enough to get through however long this is going to last. They're stealing from other people that now they can't get to those supplies that they need. Maybe they don't need 24 rolls. Maybe they just need 12, but they can't find those because somebody else has taken all of it. On the other side of it, I saw on Facebook right before I started recording this that Amazon has suspended thousands of accounts for price gouging because they are taking advantage of people in their time of crisis. People who are stuck at home, who need things, but they're raising the prices so that they can make a quick buck, so that they can survive. Trying to make sure that their neighbor, their customer, cannot survive this crisis. That also is stealing. The Eighth Commandment moves from the material possessions to beginning the abstractions. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbor, betray him, slander him, or hurt his reputation, but defend him, speak well of him, and explain everything in the kindest way. This is the commandment I believe we have the hardest time with after the first. The encouragement to not hurt our neighbor's reputation. Because reputation is what precedes us. This is what people think of when they hear our name. Is what it is about us. What it is that makes us, us. Not the clothes we wear. Not the things we have. It's what people think about us. And so also, we have the encouragement to explain everything in the kindest way. And that is what I try to do throughout all the Wrestling With Theology podcast episodes, through all the extra things and devotions on the podcast as well, that everything is explained in the kindest way. None of this is meant for malice. None of this is meant to hurt the neighbors who might be offended by it. But it is to point out the issues that rise up between us because the devil has divided us with his lies. That's the simplest way. It's also the kindest way. That it is our sin, first started by the devil in the garden, that separates us. And it is my hope, through these episodes, that we are able to come together to see what we have in common, where we can work to repair the brokenness. The Ninth and Tenth Commandments are the ones that are questioned because Luther broke them down and broke them apart between the house and the wife and servants and animals and all that, whereas the Reformed keep those together and break apart the carved idols part out of the First Commandment. So, Verse 17 just has them all together. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What does this mean? The ninth commandment about the house. We should fear and love God so that we do not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house or get it in any way which only appears right, but help and be of service to him in keeping it. The tenth commandment. 
We should fear and love God so that we do not entice or force away our neighbor's wife, workers, or animals, or turn them against him, but urge them to stay and do their duty. Covetousness, as Paul reminds us in Romans 7, is all about inner desire. This is the most abstract of the commandments because there is no physical breaking of this. It is just simply the desire to have something that our neighbor has, not something like what our neighbor has. You know, it's not that we say we want a car like our neighbor's or a house like our neighbor's. We want our neighbor's house. We want our neighbor's car. There's a whole line of lifetime movies that talk about this in a whole series of trophy wife movies where people want to have this perfect wife, this perfect life that is given to this one guy who ends up being killed because uh, he's just in the way of somebody else's covetous desire. This is life. I mean, this is really the heart of what happened in Genesis 3. The desire to be like God. That's what caused Eve to eat the fruit. She wanted to be like God. The devil told her that that is how it could happen. Eat this fruit that you've been told not to. I'm going to stop here and hopefully later uh, this week or this week and be able to finish off Exodus 20 with how the Israelites react to the Ten Commandments, but I wanted to make sure I got the Ten Commandments done today so that we can sit here and think about these things. Even though we've heard them before, we've gone over and over and over them, but it's always good to go back to the basics to remember what exactly there is. So until next time, this is Pastor Dugman wishing God's richest blessings on you as you wrestle with theology.